The following sermon is from Faith Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Join us on Sundays for our 8.15 and 11 a.m. worship services. For more information, visit us online at faith-pca.org. If you have a copy of God's Word, if you could turn with me to Genesis, so go to the front of your Bible, the first book of the Bible, Genesis 29, the text will be printed in your bulletin. It will also be on the screen behind me this morning. But I encourage you this morning, please keep your Bible open uh, because I will be referring to a few verses beyond uh, verse 30. We are in a study in this, uh, this past several months, the gospel according uh, to the life of Jacob. And we've seen that Jacob... Just a quick review, has stolen the birthright from his older brother Esau. Esau, as you can imagine, didn't like that very much and is trying to kill his brother Jacob. Jacob was sent away. He's on the run. He's been sent away by his mother Rebekah to his uncle's house, his uncle Laban. And last week or a couple of weeks ago, we looked at 28 and he was on his journey to Laban's house and he had this encounter with the compassionate power of God. Well, this morning he finally reaches his uncle's house. Uh, And so let's take a look at this passage and let's um, pick up uh, the story, chapter 29, verse 1. encourage you again, this is a long passage. A lot of these narratives are long. Uh, I, I know what it's like to feel like it goes on and on and you just want to check out, but this is God's Word. And so hang in there with me and follow along and get the sense and the flow of the passage as we read through it. This is God's Word starting in verse 29. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? And they said, We are from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said to them, it is, is it well with him? And they said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, it's coming with the sheep. And he said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and pasture them. And they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well, and then we will water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with his father's sheep, and she, uh, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father, As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, 
He ran and to meet him and embrace him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. And then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, you should therefore serve me for nothing. Should you, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? And now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for the younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and, they seemed, and it seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. And then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I might go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Does that sound familiar? Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. And so Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. This is the Word of God. Let me pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us this morning. Please pray with me. Father, um, you tell us that we do not live by bread alone, but we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so I'm asking you, Holy Spirit, to feed us this morning. Feed each and every person in this room, those watching on live stream or in an overflow room. Give us something. Feed us with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> we've been saying over and over in our series, one of the things we've been tracing through this series is that phrase by Sinclair Ferguson where he calls Jacob the twister and he says to summarize the story of Jacob we could say his story is a story of God untwisting the twisted and I love that and we see the twisting the untwisting began back in chapter 28 a couple of weeks ago when Jacob encounters the power of God in Bethel on his way to Haran. And, and though Jacob has encountered the power of God, it did not make him perfectly straight overnight. 
It did not make him spiritually mature in an instant. There is still, and we're going to see it this morning, and we're going to continue to see it, lots of untwisting to be done and spiritual growth that needs to take place in Jacob's life. Isn't that our story too this morning? See, in many ways, Jacob's story, and that's one of the things I've been loving about this uh, series, Jacob's story is our story, isn't it? We encounter God through the person of Jesus Christ. We give our lives to Christ. Jesus begins changing us. He begins smoothing out the rough edges in our lives, straightening out the things inside of us that are crooked and twisted. And you know as well as I do, that doesn't happen overnight. It takes a lifetime and will not be complete until we are with Jesus face to face. This morning, the question I want us to look at is this. How does God untwist us? How does God change us or grow us spiritually? How do we grow in grace? Of course, we can't say everything. But this passage shows us a few things about what that looks like. This morning, I want us to see in this passage that growing in grace, if we are to grow in grace, we need to see our idols, secondly, see people, and lastly, see Jesus. See your idols, see people, and see Jesus. Let's look at our first heading, see your idols. Look at verses 1 through 8. Let's just walk through the passage So Jacob is coming from this encounter with God. He's got a new pep in his step on his journey to Haran to see Laban. And he is going on this journey, and he sees a well, and he sees some shepherds around this well, and there's a stone covering uh, the well, uh, and they take it off so that they can water their sheep. And the shepherds are there, and Jacob strikes up a conversation. Where are you from? And it just so happens that they're from Haran. Do you know Laban? Yes, we know Laban. In fact, here comes his daughter, Rachel, with the sheep. This is one of those passages where, if you picked up on it, God is not mentioned one time. The name of God is not mentioned one time, but God is everywhere, isn't he? God is at work here behind the scenes in these flawed people And he is working out his perfect plans in the world. This is not chance. This is not dumb luck that Jacob ends up in Haran at this well with a member of Laban's family. It's God's providence. God's gracious providence leading Jacob every step of the way, having him where he needs to be at this precise moment. Friends, We could go on. I don't have time to apply this fully. But nothing comes into your life by chance. Everything that comes into your life comes by the fatherly hand of God. Look at verse 9. Let's continue. Verse 9 and following. So Rachel comes and Uh, She has her father's sheep, and Jacob rolls the stone away so that Laban's sheep can get water. And then he kisses Rachel and says, hey, I'm your family. I'm Rebecca's son. And she goes, and she brings Laban back and tells her father that Jacob is here. And so 
Jacob eventually takes him in, and then Jacob says, what are your wages? Look at verses 16 through 21. Jacob replies essentially with one word, Rachel. Rachel. And this text goes out of its way to show us how smitten and lovesick Jacob is with Rachel. Notice the passage. It tells us that Rachel is more attractive compared to her older sister. Jacob says, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. That was an enormous price for a bride, four times the ordinary price for a bride. He had to have Rachel. Verse 20 says those seven years gives, again, another insight, were but a few days. Why? Because of his love that he had for her. And then verse 21 tops it off, and he says something to his future father-in-law that would be unimaginable even today. The point, Jacob clearly has his heart set on Rachel in an inordinate and an idolatrous way. He's willing to do anything to get her. I must have her. And that, if we see this in the next point, ends up being Jacob's downfall because it makes him vulnerable. His idolatry makes him easy to be deceived. And it ends up devastating and, in a sense, destroying his family and leading to enormous dysfunction. Look at verses 31 and following. You'll see that there was tons of fallout because he favored Rachel over Leah. He favored Rachel's children over Leah's children and created this poison and dysfunction in their family. One of the ways that you know something is an idol is that it becomes a non-negotiable in your life. Think about Jacob and Laban. No matter what Laban said or what Laban did, Jacob agreed to it. No matter how it hurt his family, Jacob couldn't let it go, nor, and this is interesting, could Jacob see it. And that's because not only are our idols non-negotiable, but they also deceive us and blind us. Our idols create, and this is the scary part about idolatry, and it's why we need people in our lives who can help us see what we can't see, but they create this delusional field around them that makes us think that our idols will actually bless us. Think about the workaholic father. The workaholic father didn't start out thinking, I think I'll be a workaholic. No, they wanted to be successful. They wanted to be good employees. They wanted to make money so that they could send their, college, their kids to college. But over time, the job, they started looking to it for life, significance, meaning, importance, and power. And it started to deceive them, and they start thinking things like, this company won't survive without me. They start thinking things like, I need, I have to be there, or this doesn't get done. And then before long, they stop coming to the school plays, stop showing up at the soccer games, 
and stop eating dinner with the family. And you look at them, and the life has been completely sucked out of them and completely sucked out of the family. So why do we do it? Why do we run after idols? Well, simply put, love. Love and meaning and significance. And we start looking, instead of looking for love with God, we look for love in all the wrong places. One commentator points out that the reason why Jacob was so taken and made an idol out of Rachel was because Jacob's life was empty. He never had the love of his father. He lost the love of his mother. He, never, he will never see her again. And he never had any real sense of God's love. And then he sees Rachel. And he says, that's it. That's my ticket. If I get her, then it will fix my miserable life. If I just had her, I would be happy. Friends, every one of us, just on the nature of being made a human being in the image of God, we are always binding ourselves to something. We're always looking to something or someone for significance and meaning. It's simply how you were made. And the reason why our idols are so, that's why our idols are so destructive and devastating because the Bible says that you were built for one relationship and built for one person, and that is God. And in order for your life to work properly, God has to be the center of your life. It's why Augustine is famous for saying, your heart is restless until it finds rest in God. And so part of growing in grace, part of God untwisting us, means that we start to recognize the idols that are operating inside of our hearts. And so, what are your idols this morning? What are the things in your life that you are looking at that are, it's a non-negotiable that you're saying, I got to have this because if I get this, life will work for me and I will finally be happy. What is the thing that you are looking at that you're saying, if I just had fill in the blank, if I just got that job, that promotion, if I could just get married, if I could just go out on a date, if I could run with that social crowd or get into that school or get my income up to this level, or if I could just get the house renovated and get the new kitchen, kitchen that I've always wanted, then I would finally be happy and I would be at peace. What is that for you? You see, Jacob thinks, if I can just get Rachel, everything will be okay. Look at verse 25. He goes into the tent thinking it's Rachel, and in one of the greatest lines in the Bible, the Hebrew literally says, in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Tim Keller says that this is a picture of the delusionment of our idolatry. Our idols 
are always Leah. They are never Rachel. Because our idols can never give us what our soul desperately needs. They are always Leah. Friends, God is who we're looking for because God is the lover of our souls. And he's the only one who can satisfy, love us, and give us peace and rest, the peace and rest that we so desire in our lives. Secondly, we need to see our idols. Secondly, uh, to grow in grace, we need to see people. I won't spend much time on this, but notice the pattern. I think it's important to point out. Verse, chapter 28, what does God do? He unconditionally commits to Jacob. I'm going to love you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to give you uh, my presence with you. And then comes chapter 29, and he starts to show things, some, Jacob, some very hard things in his life. It's the gospel order. You have the assurance of my love, and that is going to free you, Jacob, to admit your weakness and to see your sin and to see how lovely that you really are. Because you see, Jacob is a deceiver, isn't he? We've seen that throughout the life of Jacob. He's a manipulator. And how does God continue to untwist him and to unwind him and straighten him out and to change and grow him? You know how God does it? He brings a bigger deceiver and a bigger manipulator, Laban, into his life. Laban, just like us, reading this passage, can see it a mile away how desperate Jacob is to marry Rachel. He could see it a mile away, and he uses it as an opportunity to exploit Jacob. And he does it, and he's very deceptive. And notice how indirect he is in this transaction. Look at verses 18 and 19. I'll work seven years for Rachel. Verse 19, notice Laban never really agrees to Jacob's statement. He just simply says, it's better that you get her than someone else get her and marry her. And Jacob takes it because that's what he's looking for. He wants Rachel more than anything. He takes it as a positive agreement. But Laban is only saying it would be good for Jacob to marry Rachel. He does not shake hands on the specifics. Verse 22 through 25. Comes time for Jacob to get Rachel. He's worked seven years. They have this huge wedding celebration. And Laban takes the older daughter Leah to the tent. And Jacob sleeps with her. And Jacob marries the wrong daughter. And Jacob wakes up the next morning and realizes that he's been tricked. You see, the deceiver has been deceived. And the deceiver, Jacob, is finally getting a dose of his own medicine. And Laban, and he looks at Laban and says, why have you done this? What have you done? We had an agreement. Why have you deceived me? And the word deceived, same word that is used a few chapters earlier, to describe when Isaac found out that Jacob had deceived him. Verse 26, please look at this. Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Sound familiar? 
Those words would have most certainly cut Jacob to the heart. In those moments, Jacob was most certainly thinking, Oh no, (laughs) you are doing to me what I did to my father and to Esau. Jacob's deceit and Laban's deceit both involved, it's not an accident, the switching of the firstborn and the secondborn. Commentator Robert Alter, I love this, quotes a rabbi who imagines an angry encounter with Jacob and Leah the next day. And Jacob says to her, I called out Rachel in the dark and you answered. Why did you do that to me? And Leah said to him, Your father called out Esau in the dark. And you answered, why did you do that to him? Friends, don't, don't, don't hear me say, what happened to Jacob was enormously painful. And Laban's sin against Jacob was wrong, and his daughters, it's terribly wrong, and it has lasting consequences, but God is using even this to untwist Jacob. He's using it for his purposes and his glory in Jacob's life. God is lovingly but firmly using Laban to be a mirror so that Jacob could see his own heart. And friends, God does the exact same thing in our lives. God is so committed to untwisting us He's so committed to changing us that sometimes God uses very painful and hard providences in our lives in order to do it. And just like we see in this story, the thing that God often uses is people, is relationships in our lives. Think about it. If you are married... In your marriage, you cannot hide your critical spirit, your selfishness, your impatience, and your moodiness. And God is taking your own selfishness in marriage, and he uses it, doesn't he? And he uses it against you for your own good. God actually is using your spouse to bubble up your sin so that you will deal with it and run to Jesus, so that you might experience repentance unto life and change and grow. And so you know what that means? The very thing that drives you nuts about your spouse is the very thing that God is using to untwist you and to make you more like him. But it's not only God using our spouses, he also uses who else? Our children, doesn't he? We think oftentimes parenting, at least I do, we often can get into this idea of it's a one-way street where God is just using us to train and shepherd them. Is that true? Absolutely. But it's also the opposite, isn't it? Oftentimes, friends, parenting is more about what God is doing in you rather than in your children. Because when we look at our children, we have this tendency when we see them to get frustrated by their selfishness. And instead of getting frustrated, our children 
are to be a mirror that show us who we really are. And if we let our children be a mirror to our own hearts, you know what we find out? That we're really just like them. We're just older and more mature, and we cover up our selfishness a little better. And so who are the Labans in your life this morning? And instead of being annoyed by them, which we often are, could they be a means of grace in your life? Could they be a means of grace that God is using to untwist you and grow you in grace? God pursued Jacob very intentionally and used providences that he brought into his life in order to untwist and change him to help him see his sin, and God does the exact same thing in our lives. Lastly, so see your idols, see people, and lastly, see Jesus. Look at verses 29 through, or 27 through 29. I love this part of the story. Jacob worked for Laban another seven years in order to get Rachel. And we've seen how that idolatry has ravaged his life. But the greatest casualty in this story, is it not Leah? Is it not the older daughter? The narrator gives us one important description of Leah in verse 17. The text says that she had weak eyes. Some assume that this is talking about her bad eyesight, but that doesn't go with the passage. The passage doesn't say Leah had bad eyesight and Rachel had 20-20 vision. Now instead, it says that Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was beautiful. And so weakness more than likely means that Rachel was unsightly or unattractive in some way. The point seems to be clear that all of her life she had been living in her younger sister's shadow, her younger sister who was beautiful. And as a result, her father Laban, he knew that no man was going to want to marry her. There would be no money offered for her. For years he'd wondered, I need to get her married because I want to get to Rachel because I know I can get a good price for Rachel and that lots of people will want to to marry her. And so we have Leah, the daughter of a father that did not want her. And she's now a wife of a husband who does not want her. Verse 30, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Leah, the girl that no one wanted. But please look in your Bibles. Again, this is not part of the passage I read, but please turn and look with me at verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened up her womb, but Rachel was barren. This is more than just God being compassionate. It's God reminding us that He particularly loves lowly people. That He particularly loves people that are rejected and outcast. 
and the people that no one wants. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God uses what? The foolish things in the world to shame the wise and the weak things to shame the strong. Also shows us that God is the true bridegroom. Jacob, you won't be a husband to her. I will. You will not love your wife. I will. Verse 35, the most remarkable thing of all. Leah conceived again and bore a son named Judah. Named Judah. That is unbelievable. Because Judah, in Genesis chapter 49, we see that through him, Jesus would come. The Messiah, the true king, would someday come. That salvation would come into the world, not through beautiful Rachel, but through the girl that no one wanted. Is the gospel not amazing? It turns everything upside down. And friends, I want to suggest that this gospel that has the power unto salvation is the very same power that changes you and sanctifies you and makes you more like Jesus and grows you in grace. Because you see, when God came to the world through the person of Jesus Christ, he truly was the son of Leah, wasn't he? It wasn't Jesus the man that no one wanted? Born in a manger, he says in Isaiah that he had no beauty, that we should look at him. He came to his own people, John chapter 1, and they received him not. And at the end of Jesus' life, he looks around on the cross, and who's there? Not many people. All of his closest friends left him. Why would God, through Christ, become Leah's son? The one that no one wanted. You know why? Because he loves you. Because he wants to be with you. That Jesus takes upon himself our sin and dies in our place on the cross. And friends, it is that love that will grow you in grace. Because when that love grips your heart, you will release your idols You will turn from your sin. We will stop searching for love in all the wrong places because we're already loved. Jesus really is better than you think. Come to him this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the gospel, for loving us with a love that will never let us go. Would you forgive us this morning for the ways that we try to find life apart from you, the ways that we run after the idols of this world? Holy Spirit, give us humility. Help us to see the people in our lives. Help us to acknowledge the sin that they reveal in us and lead us to repentance. Give us the assurance of your love for us and make Jesus more beautiful than everything else. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.